Today we're in a really one of the most amazing passages in the New Testament. We know this as the Transfiguration. Our passage is Matthew, starting in chapter 16 and verse 28, and then we're going to go all the way to chapter 17 and verse 9 this morning. Our passage is very closely connected to what we've seen in this past maybe month or so that we've been looking at Matthew chapter 16. You remember in Caesarea Philippi, Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. In verse 16, Matthew or Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed Peter's understanding in verse 17. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus tells him that he is Peter, and on Peter, on this rock, Jesus will build his church in verse 18. And Peter and we think the rest of the apostles would be given the keys of the kingdom. He would provide access to the kingdom by preaching the gospel, and he would shut people out of the kingdom in church discipline. And that's a a promise we saw of divine guidance so that the reality of heaven would be reflected on earth. You see, the church is supposed to be a gathering of genuine believers, and with these keys, Peter is kind of making that, that reality, what's true in heaven, also true on the earth. But from that point on, Jesus began to teach the disciples that he would suffer and die in Jerusalem. And they as well would have to suffer as they followed him in this world. They would have to deny themselves. They would lose their earthly life for his sake. They would take up their cross and follow the same path for Jesus as he walked for them. They would have to follow him unto death, but in that they would find life. Look at verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this losing of life in this world would continue until what Jesus says in verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And so Jesus would come, and he would come with his angels, and he would come in the glory of the Father, and he would judge every man, and he would repay each person for how they lived in this world. And with all of this, we're starting to get a picture of an order of events. It's an order that, that we know well, but it would be, it would be new. It would not have been what the disciples expected. And so Jesus would suffer. Jesus would die. Verse 21 at the end, Jesus would be raised from the dead. And then Jesus would ascend to heaven, which isn't necessarily stated here, but it's implied in our passage. Jesus would be gone. And he would in that time be in heaven and and from heaven he will build his church through Peter and on Peter and through the other apostles and then through the rest of the church through history. And at some point, presumably when that church is built, Jesus will come. Again, verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And so the Son of Man who left the glory of his Father to become the Son of Man would then go to his Father in heaven and eventually 
he would return. And in our text, we're going to see this glory of the Son of Man. We're going to see a preview of his coming. Peter, James, and John are going to see this preview of the coming and the power of the Lord, but they're not going to be allowed to speak about it until after Jesus is raised from the dead. And so our passage is, again, Matthew 16, starting in verse 28, and we're going to cover all the way to 7, verse 8, but let's read a little bit broader as well. Let's start again in verse 24, Matthew 16, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now for Peter, James, and John, this would have been an encouragement. You know, they saw something of the glory of Christ. For the other disciples like Matthew, this would have been an an added post-resurrection confirmation of what they already knew about the Lord. And I think of them saying kind of on that day, saying like, I knew that something happened on that mountain, but you weren't telling me about it. And, and so they, they knew that something happened, but, but they weren't told about it. And so like us, they never saw this with their own eyes, but they heard about it from Peter, James, and John after. And then Matthew is now repeating it to us. And this is a sign really for, for everyone, for all of us, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. What happened on this day confirms everything that Matthew has been telling us about Jesus. And so we see here without a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. We see his glory. We hear the voice of the Father and even Moses and Elijah contribute to the whole situation. And all of it together is meant to make us see Jesus only. That we might put him in his rightful place and listen to him. And the whole scene should encourage us and cause us to follow Jesus, just like we've seen 
throughout chapter 16. And it should stir us up with hope as we look forward to the coming of this Son of Man. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at our text under five sections. And we could call these five stages in the sight of the Son. Five stages in the sight of the Son. We're going to see, first of all, the prediction of the sight of the Son in verses 28 and chapter 17, verse 1. Then we're going to see the transformation in the sight of the sun, verse 2 of 17. The conversation during the sight of the sun, verses 3 and 4. The confirmation of the sight of the sun, that's the voice from the Father through the cloud in verses 5 and 6. And then finally we'll see the conclusion to the sight of the sun in verses 7 and 8. Now this week I've asked the Lord that He would allow us to see something of His glory as we look at this passage, that it would encourage us and and allow us to to just worship Him and and see the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to shorten the headings for convenience here. We're just going to call it, first of all, the prediction in verses 28 and chapter 17 and verse 1, the prediction. Now, in some ways, this is the most difficult section of what we're looking at this morning. Verse 28 is difficult to interpret no matter how you, you know, no matter what you do with it, it seems like you have to slightly modify what Jesus says. Look at it there in verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, with my heading called the prediction, I've already said to you the way that I understand this verse. It's a prediction of the transfiguration. This is one of those verses in Matthew that that very closely connects and ties two sections together. Matthew has just spoken of the coming uh, of, of the coming of the Son of Man in the glory of his Father. He's just spoken to the disciples. Uh, about taking up their cross, which means that they need to be ready to be executed for his sake. And now he says that some of them will not taste death. That is, they will not taste that death. They will not be martyred, as he was just talking about, until they see the coming in his kingdom. Now, when Jesus says, truly, I say to you, it's an emphatic statement And Jesus is emphasizing what he says here. This is very important. Truly, I say to you, but what is Jesus saying? What does he mean by this? Some will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, some have seen a connection here, and and I think there is a connection here, but between verses 27 and 28, and and at first glance, it seems to make sense. In verse 27, Jesus says he's going to come. And then in verse 28, some standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. And so far, so good, but but hold on, if we think about it, Jesus hasn't come yet, and all of those standing there that day have died. All of the apostles have tasted death. Now, some actually come to these verses and they say that, well, Jesus was wrong. And he expected his return to happen very shortly after his death within a generation, but Jesus got it wrong. And of course, that won't won't do. Jesus couldn't have been wrong. If Jesus is God in human flesh, if Jesus is a true prophet, then and he's even more than a prophet as we know, then he obviously didn't get something wrong. 
while others go further and they say that Christ has already come and that we are in the kingdom now, or some even say we're, we're in the eternal state even right now. And of course, that's a heretical position. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 16, Paul says this, he says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And so we put the, these kind of people who think that we're already in the kingdom and we're already in the eternal state and in this kind of category of Hymenaeus and Philetus that taught the resurrection had already happened. They, they saw too much as having been already fulfilled and they swerved from the truth. To say that Christ's second coming has happened already, that's a heretical position. And that's really the, the difficulty in eschatology for us. We need to figure out how much has happened already and how much is, is yet to happen in the future. But if we say too much has happened, if we say that everything has happened already, we have become like Hymenaeus and Philetus and we have swerved from the truth. You see, all Christians are awaiting the personal, visible return of Jesus Christ. And that's regardless of your eschatology. Whether you're, you're amillennial or postmillennial or premillennial, everyone's awaiting this personal, visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you're like Hymenaeus and Philetus and you've kind of seen too much fulfillment and you're really in this heretical position. And so Jesus obviously isn't teaching heresy. And, and so he can't be teaching that his coming would happen before the apostles died, not his second coming in the full sense. And so now what we have to do with this passage is we have to modify the idea of his coming in some way. And what we're going to do here is we're going to kind of walk through the views a little bit. One of the main views, and it it comes in heretical and non-heretical forms, is that Jesus came in 70 AD. And when the and when Jesus came, the the he came through the Roman army who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And the idea then is that some of the 12 were still alive in 70 AD, but not all of them. And we're going to look at that view in more detail when we get to Matthew 24, when we get to the Olivet Discourse. But basically, this view sees the coming as a coming in judgment. And Jesus comes through the pagan Roman army, which does fulfill some other prophecies that, that Jesus gives, that, that he gave of the destruction of Jerusalem and specifically of the destruction of the temple. But to see Matthew 16, 28 as the fulfillment of, or, or to see the 70 AD as the fulfillment of Matthew 16, 28 is, is problematic. For one, and, and I, you need to really think with me here this morning, for one is, how is what happened in 70 AD, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? You see, there's, there's really no connection between what happened in 70 AD and the kingdom. And it almost doesn't matter how you think about the kingdom, whether you view it as a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of God's people, or whether you see it as a, a spiritual earthly reign of Christ that God's people are somehow responsible to bring in, 
Or whether you understand the kingdom as we teach as a future earthly reign of Christ in the millennium with a a present connection so that we can become citizens of the kingdom now, but we're still awaiting the future establishment of that kingdom when Christ will reign in the millennium. And so whether you're all-millennial or or post-millennial or pre-millennial, it's it's difficult to see how in any way Christ came in his kingdom in 70 AD. So I I hope you can kind of track with me on that. Some tie this 70 AD coming with verse 27, and they say that Christ has already come, and that we are now in the eternal state. And as I said already, that's heretical. You know, there is no death in the eternal state, and of course, we die now still, right? And so obviously we're not in the eternal state. So it's not the second coming. It's not 70 AD that, that Jesus is talking about here in some kind of coming when he doesn't come, um, but comes through the Roman, Roman army in judgment. So let's kind of continue as we look at these views. And another view is that this coming that some would see before death is the spread of Christianity. The spread of Christianity. Think about Acts chapter 2 and following. And, and I think we would all say that, that in some sense Christ came and, and there was the power of Christ on display in the early Christian church. And I think we could say that, that some, that is all except Judas, saw the power of the gospel as the gospel went from Jerusalem to Samaria and beyond in those early days of the church. And I think this view fits better with the kingdom concept, even if it wholly does wholly spiritualize the kingdom. I think everyone could agree that, again, to some extent, the church grew and spread by the power of the risen Lord, and so in some sense, Jesus came. The problem with this view is that it it does end up modifying the kingdom as it was promised in the Old Testament, and I've spoken about that before, and I'm not, I'm not going to repeat much of it here today. Another problem is that really it was the work of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sent. Remember, Jesus departed in his ascension in Acts chapter 1, and then he sent his Holy Spirit. And so our Lord is definitely working, but it's it's difficult to see him as having come in the early church, having come in his kingdom. The other views work very similarly, so I'm not going to kind of go into detail on them. I'm just going to list them. Some see this coming as Pentecost. Others see it as the resurrection and ascension of the Lord. And really the same problems apply to those views. And so I think the best way to understand our our opening verse is to see it as a preview or as a promise of a preview of the coming of the Lord in his kingdom. And so some, that is Peter, James, and John, they're not going to taste death. They're not going to die until they see this sight. And note that word there, see it, it, it's repeated throughout our passage. This is something that they see. In verse 9, Jesus describes the transfiguration as a vision. And in in the original, it's, it's literally just a sight from the same root as the word to see. And so they're going to, they're going to see something. They saw something. And what they would see in verse 28 was the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, which is then a preview again of what we saw in verse 27. The Son of Man is going to come. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory 
of his father. And so the transfiguration in verse 2 is a preview or a sight of what will happen when Christ returns as described in verse 27. Now, a supporting argument for this is that we notice in chapter 17 and verse 1, remember the, the chapter breaks were added much, much later. Chapter 17 there, you'll notice, begins with the word and. And the word and shows that the transfiguration is somehow connected to what came before. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Also, it's unusual for Matthew to give such a precise time after six days. Matthew doesn't usually tell us even where Jesus is or where he's going or how long, at least not until kind of the crucifixion narrative where the the timeline is given pretty precisely. But there's this precise time after six days, Jesus took some of those standing there to see his coming. Now, the cons against this view is that, that Jesus says that they will not taste death before this event. And people kind of think that, that six days is too soon for such a dramatic statement. And the answer to that that I would give is that if Jesus wants to speak dramatically, then Jesus can speak dramatically. And sometimes in prophetic utterances, it seems like prophets speak dramatically. And they did not taste death, the death that he was just talking about, when he said, take up your cross and follow me. And so they, they, they did not taste death in those six days, and they saw this vision of the transfiguration. The other objection against this view is that it's not a coming of Christ in his kingdom. And, and I agree, it's not a coming of Christ in his kingdom, but I would add that, that seeing the glory of the Lord Jesus on the mountain would be very much parallel to what will be seen when the Son of Man comes with his angels in the glory of his Father. And seeing him with Moses and Elijah, remember these are Old Testament saints, is what's gonna happen when the kingdom is established. See, the kingdom is when God is going to fulfill all of his promises that he made to the Old Testament saints, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob and Moses and Elijah. All of them need to have the promises that were made to them fulfilled on earth, and that's going to happen in the kingdom. And so if you think about it, God made certain promises to Abraham that he would, that he would have a land and that his descendants would have this land and that he would be blessed and all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. But it never happened for Abraham. Abraham died. And so Abraham is waiting and looking forward to his resurrection when these things are going to be fulfilled. And, and promises like that were made to all of the Old Testament saints. And so all of the Old Testament saints are waiting for these promises to be fulfilled on the earth where the promises were made. And, and, and so these things will be fulfilled in the kingdom. And so to see Moses and Elijah and the glory of the Lord is very much parallel to what's going to happen when the Son of Man comes and establishes his kingdom. And so it's a preview of his coming in his kingdom. Now, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all have the transfiguration immediately after what Jesus says in our text in verse 28. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, another argument for this view is if we go to Second Peter 
uh, chapter 1. Go ahead and turn with me there. 2 Peter chapter 1. And Peter is uh, mentioning being with Jesus on the holy mountain. And notice that Peter here refers to this as a coming of the Lord. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so we say, well, when were you an eyewitness of his majesty, Peter? Well, verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him from the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so Peter is speaking about the transfiguration, and he was an eyewitness of, again, he calls it the power and the coming of the Lord. And so that's number one. We saw the prediction of the sight of the sun. Let's go now to verse two, number two in our outline, and let's see the transformation in the sight of the sun. Let's read starting in again starting in verse 1 here chapter 17. After 6 days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Now Matthew doesn't give us much detail here. He just says Jesus was transfigured. And Mark uses the same word. The Greek is metamorpho, uh, and you can hear the English word maybe metamorphosis from metamorpho, and it, it means to transform or to change form. This word is also used in 2 Corinthians 3.18 to describe how the Lord changes us by His Spirit, making us more and more like Christ. It says there that we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being metamorpho. We are being uh, changed in form. And that's a change there from the inside out. The word is also used in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Same word, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And again, with this word, we see an inside out transformation making us more like Christ, and and it begins on the inside with what's happening in our minds and our thinking. And so with our Lord, what seems to be happening in Matthew 17 is that what is already inside of him is being revealed. And so what we see is his essential glory, his divine nature was covered in the incarnation so that his glory was not visible while he was on earth. His essential glory, the, the, the inner part of, of his being was not always on display. Jesus didn't have a, a halo and a shining face all the time. His essential glory was, was covered by his humanity. His glory was veiled by his humanity. But on this mountain with these three disciples, the glory that was normally hidden was now revealed. And so what was inside, what was always inside of him now was made visible externally so that the disciples saw his glory. 
And this is the glory of his father that he just spoke about in verse 27. It's the glory of God. And, and, and this glory, as we see sometimes in the Old Testament, it's now visibly on display through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke about this glory. And, and I want you to maybe turn with me again to John chapter 17. John 17 and verse 4 and 5, Jesus says this to his father. He's praying here, I I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so Jesus, as a man, was separated from that glory while he's on earth, at least as a man, whereas Jesus as God always participated in that glory. And so what we have in our passage is a a glimpse of Jesus' divine nature shining through his human nature. And this is really beyond what we're able to explain. And, And indeed, Matthew, he doesn't try to explain it. He just simply says that Jesus was transformed or transfigured comes from the the Latin. And so he was transformed before them. And in this transformation, Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun. His face shone like the sun. And the parallel passage in Luke says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. Literally, the appearance of his face became other. And his clothing became dazzling white. That's Luke 9, 29. The evangelists are trying to bring out this glorious scene and and it's like even their words can't fully express what they saw, what happened that day. His face shone like the sun. And the glory of God, again, in the Old Testament was often made visible in, in a bright light. And this might remind us of Moses in Exodus 34, verses 29 and 30, when Moses spoke with the Lord on Mount Sinai. Verse 29 of Exodus 34 says, Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. And we could make a case here, I think, that that Moses shone, sorry, Moses spoke with the Lord. And he spoke with the Lord Jesus and at a time before the Lord Jesus took on human flesh. And so Moses and the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus spoke on the mountain. And as they spoke, then Moses' face shone because he had spent time with the mountain, on the mountain with Jesus, whose face at that time, might have shone like the sun as well. And so I think that that's what's happening here. And so there, the, we're now seeing the, the same glory maybe that Moses saw previously on the mountain. And we know we're very encouraged in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 43 that one day we too are going to shine like this. Verse 43 of Matthew 13, then... When the kingdom is set up, and I think when we're in the eternal state at this point, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so what is true of Jesus then will one day also be true of us. 
Also, Matthew tells us that Jesus' clothes became dazzling white. Uh, that's actually from, from Luke 9.29. His clothes became dazzling white. Ma- Matthew says that they became white as light. My favorite is how Mark puts it in Mark 9, 2 and 3. He was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And Mark is telling us that that this is not a natural white. It's not like somebody did Jesus' laundry special that day, that that something supernatural happened so that even Jesus' clothes began to glow. Now, the Apostle John, he didn't record the transfiguration, but he said in chapter 1 of his gospel that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this sight of the Son, really, again, it confirms for us who Jesus is, that He is the Christ, that He is the Son of God. He's the one who shares in the divine glory of God. And on the mountain, and we can't really be sure which mountain this was, Peter, James, and John, they saw his glory. And then Moses and Elijah show up, and we're going to call this number three, the conversation. Verses three and four, the conversation. Look at verse three. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Well, this is Matthew's first behold in this passage right there at the beginning of verse 3, behold. And he has it two more times in verse 5. He's, he's trying to, to draw us into the wonder of the moment. Behold, Moses and Elijah, they also appeared on the mountain. Now, how they knew it was Moses and Elijah, we don't really know. Maybe Jesus told them later on on the way down. Maybe Elijah kind of looks particular. I don't know about Moses, but but somehow they come to know that it was Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus, according to Luke 9.31, about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And we wonder at this point, at least I wonder, why Moses and Elijah? You know, why not somebody else? Why not, why not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Why not David? Why not, who knows? But perhaps they represent the entire Old Testament. The law comes from Moses and the prophets really begin with Elijah. Another idea is that somehow they represent the end times. Elijah was expected to return before the day of the Lord and before the establishment of the kingdom. And so Malachi 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6 says this. The Lord is speaking here. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Moses also spoke about the end in Deuteronomy 18, and I think I've we've looked at this passage before, but why don't you go ahead and turn there. This is an important passage. Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15. 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses is speaking here, so it's going to be a prophet like Moses. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And you'll notice that that's repeated in our passage when the voice of God speaks from the cloud. It is to him that you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so there's this prediction of this coming prophet like Moses. And of course, Moses is on the mountain here kind of confirming this. And God says, listen to him, listen to this prophet. The Lord Jesus Christ is the prophet that the Lord has raised up. Now we're thinking about here how how Moses and Elijah perhaps point towards the end, and we could turn then to Revelation chapter 11, where we see some Moses and Elijah-like, or perhaps even Moses and Elijah themselves, in the two witnesses in Revelation 11, look at verse, starting at verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, And they will prophesy for 1260 days, and that's half of the tribulation period, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. That might remind us of Elijah. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Again, that reminds us of Elijah. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And again, that reminds us of Moses and the plagues on Egypt. And so in the end, we're going to see Moses and Elijah like, or maybe perhaps Moses and Elijah themselves, resurrected and coming and acting as witnesses during the tribulation. But regardless of of what all this represents, we have here in, in our text in Matthew 17, we have two Old Testament saints, one who never died. Remember, Elijah was taken straight up to heaven. One who did die, Moses died. And, and maybe that's then a picture of of those who will die in Christ and those who will meet the Lord in the air. But anyways, these, these Old Testament saints are, are standing in glory. Again, Luke chapter 9 and verse 30, it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so we've got two Old Testament saints that both spoke with the Lord on the mountains, And they're speaking in glory with the Lord on a mountain. And this is a picture then of the coming of Christ. And there's this conversation happening. And and now Peter comes and he's going to contribute to this conversation. And Luke tells us that that the disciples, they were, they were heavy with sleep and they were, they were just waking up. They're now kind of getting fully awake. And, and Peter says about, or Luke says about Peter that he didn't know what he said. 
And Mark explains it this way. He says he didn't know what to say because they were terrified. Now, when Peter doesn't know what to say, he still seems to always have something that he's going to say. And so he's going to say something here. And, and I used to just think that Peter was just confused and had no idea what he was talking about. And, and Luke kind of almost gives us that impression, not knowing what he said. But it's, it's likely that, that Peter's making some connections here, and I'll, I'll try to help us make those this morning. That he, he's going to make some tents all of a sudden. And, and these tents would be like the tents that are from the Feast of Tabernacles or from the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, depending on your English translation, they, those celebrated how God delivered his people from Egypt in the Exodus. And actually, when, when Luke uses the word and, and he spoke about their departure, that word in the Greek is, comes from the word for the Exodus. It's, it's speaking about his Exodus. But regardless, there, there's this celebration of the Feast of Booze. And, and in Jesus, Peter then is rightly seeing one who's greater than Moses. And he's going to bring a new Exodus. He's going to be the one who delivers the people from all sin. And he's going to be the one who brings this redeemed people to a better heavenly country, as the book of Hebrews puts it. And I think what Peter is thinking here is that the kingdom is coming now. He sees the glory. He sees the, the coming of the Lord. And he thinks, this is it. This is the kingdom. And, 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 and now it's coming without the suffering that Jesus had just told us about. And so he's going, hey, this is great. This is, this is the, this is what, what I had in mind, Lord. This is, we're not going to have to suffer. And, and, and here comes the kingdom. This is what I was talking about. And so, you know, after this deliverance, from Egypt, Israel gathered in tabernacles and they, they feasted and they enjoyed the fruit of their conquest. And I, I think it was also, and this isn't from my notes, so don't trust me on this, but I think it was also connected with the harvest time. And so it's a, a time of celebration and a, a, a looking forward to the ultimate kingdom. And in the ultimate kingdom, the one feast that we're going to celebrate is the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and to see that, I want you to turn to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14. Now, if you're like me, you kind of go, oh, oh, not one of the, I hope I can find this thing. But Zechariah chapter 14 in the Minor Prophets near the end, um, starting at verse 9, it says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Start, this is the beginning of the kingdom. The Lord will be king. Yahweh will be king over all the earth. The Messiah has come. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel to the king's winepress. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. So there's been a war against Jerusalem. The Lord has come. He's, he's conquered the, the enemy armies. And now there's going to be a plague on those who wage war. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. 
And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected. Gold, silver, garments in great abundance and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys and whatever beasts may be in those camps. And then verse 16, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord... There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. Uh, John MacArthur said about Zechariah, that's the all-millennialist's nightmare, and, and it really is. This is this is a clear picture of the millennial kingdom. The, the Lord here is king over all the earth, and yet... At the same time, we know this can't be the eternal state because how are there plagues? How are there people dying if this is the eternal state? And so this is a, a picture of the establishment of the kingdom. The Lord is now sitting on David's throne, king over all the earth, and we're going to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And, and if we don't do that, there's going to be even punishment for those nations that don't. And, and so it seems like Peter is beginning to think here, here we go, we're, we're in the kingdom, let's get the booths going, and you, Moses and Elijah can, can hang out under the booths, and we're going to have a great old time. This is just what I was hoping, Lord, and we got past it without the suffering. But before Peter even finishes his, his idea, and I love this, the Lord from heaven interrupts Peter. He's still talking, and the Lord interrupts him and says, listen, how about you listen to my son, and I think that would be a good admonishment for us too. This is now number four, the confirmation from the Father, the confirmation in the sight of the Son, verses five and six. I called this the confirmation because the, the Father confirms what Peter had previously confessed, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now we know this again as readers of Matthew because Matthew has told us this from the very beginning. In fact, this is the second time for us that we have heard this voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son. Remember in Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3 and verse 17, I'm going to start reading at verse 16 here. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so we know this voice from the previous time. But as far as we know, Peter, James, and John weren't there at the baptism of Jesus. And so everything that happens now in Matthew 17 is really for them and for their benefit. And so in verse 5 of our text again, Matthew 17, 5 and 6 while he was still speaking, or he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son 
with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Now the bright cloud is similar to clouds in the Old Testament that visibly manifested the glory of God. And the word there, overshadow, was, was usually used for something that, that kind of blacked out the light and, and cast a shadow over an area, like when a black cloud kind of blocks out the sun. But here it's kind of used in the opposite way. It's, it's like this cloud covering would have, would have lightened up the area. And so it, they're, they're kind of covered in, in the light of this cloud. And it seems that the cloud almost descends on them, on the mountain, very reminiscent of the giving of the law, maybe in Exodus um, chapter 24, 25, 24. Um, anyways, I think I quoted that section earlier. But, but this, is, this is somewhat reminiscent of, the again, the cloud on Mount Sinai that came down when God gave the law. And it scared Israel so bad at that time that they asked that they would never hear that voice again. And you remember that that cloud came with thunder and lightning and the the sound of a trumpet. And God said, yeah, yeah, let's not do that again, that he would now speak through Moses. And he also said in response to that, that he would raise up a prophet like Moses. We read that in Deuteronomy 18 earlier. This is Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And so Jesus is that prophet, and God confirmed it with a voice from the cloud. And in, in Greek it says, behold a cloud, and then behold a voice from the cloud. And so there's these this double behold here, a, a cloud and a voice from the cloud. And the cloud, the voice from the cloud said in verse 5, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And what God says from the cloud is, is what he said at the baptism, plus he adds, listen to him, which again is from Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. And what the Lord says here comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. And so God quotes scripture from the cloud. This is Psalm 2, 7. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, behold my servant, whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so Jesus is the eternally begotten son of God. He is the servant of Yahweh. He's the one who's going to accomplish Yahweh's will, which in Isaiah is salvation for God's people through the sacrifice of the servant in Isaiah 53, as well as the the idea of the future establishment of the kingdom and the rule of the servant as king over the nations. And so this one is going to accomplish the will of Yahweh, salvation and dominion over the earth. And by stitching these three verses together, we we get a full picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the King. He's, He's the one who sits on David's throne, David's promised son. In other words, the Messiah or the Christ. 
He's the son of God. He's the one who Yahweh loves. His, Yahweh's delight is in him, which again, if Yahweh loves him and delights in him, it shows us again that, that Jesus is God, but that he's God in human flesh. And he is the one who would undo the effects of the fall and he would bring salvation to fallen man. And so we see who Jesus is and we see what he came to do. And as we think about that, really the, the only reason that we can be right with God, the only reason that, that we can be reconciled to this holy God who, who rules this universe and who says that he's going to judge us one day is through Jesus Christ, Jesus, the one in whom God is well pleased. Because God was not well pleased with us because of our sin, and, and so we were subject to his wrath. We, he was going to punish us. He was going to send us to hell forever. But through Jesus Christ, if we are united to Christ by faith, we can be made right with God, and then God is well pleased with us, even as he was well pleased with Jesus for all of eternity. And so when the disciples heard this, when they heard this voice from heaven, as often happens when, when God manifests himself or when angels are, are manifest and, and, and men come into the presence of the holy, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. And the only deliverance from that, that, that kind of dreaded fear of God is through Jesus Christ who can make us right with God and, and justify us and forgive us of our sins. And when they heard this voice from heaven, remember, there's that final added acknowledgement from Deuteronomy 18.15, which is, listen to him. And in this context, when, when the Lord says from heaven, listen to him, I think it reminds us of everything that Jesus had said earlier in, in chapter 16, that, that if we would come after him, we need to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him and lose our life for his sake. That we need to, to suffer in this world and that only after a time of difficulty and suffering in the world will we see the Son of Man coming to repay each person according to what he has done. And so when the Lord says, listen to him, it's almost a reminder of everything that we've seen before in chapter 16. Well, the fifth stage then is the conclusion, I called it, verses 7 and 8. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Again, Jesus is the one who can take away our dread of God. And in him, we have peace with God. And through him, we are reconciled with God, made right with God. We are justified and declared righteous. And this shows us once again, I think we see the compassion of the Lord Jesus. He touched them. He reassures them. I can kind of picture him putting his hand on their shoulders as they're face down on the ground and he tells them not to fear. Everyone else is gone now and they saw Jesus only. And it's the Jesus that they've, they've seen all along. It's Jesus the man. Jesus only. Literally there, Jesus himself only and, and and I'm sure it's a, a great comfort for them. No more face shining like the sun, no more bright light clothing, bright as light clothing, no more frightening voice from heaven. Moses and Elijah are gone and, and they see Jesus himself only. 
And it seems that Matthew wants to emphasize this vision with this final part of a a seeing, again, that word seeing, a seeing of Jesus only. Well, this past month we've been, or so, I don't remember how long it's been, but we've spent a good deal of time seeing Jesus, starting in Matthew 16 and verse 13, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is, and, and who do you say that I am? To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we need to see him rightly. We need to see him for all of who he is. We need to see his glory. We need to see his humanity. We need to see his work of salvation. We need to see him in his offices as our prophet, priest, and king, the one who brings us the word of God, the one who acts as our our great high priest who makes atonement for us and intercedes for us that we might have an advocate with the Father and as our King, the Lord of our life and the one who is coming to establish his kingdom and, and make right everything that went wrong in this world when Adam and Eve sinned. And so we need to see this Lord Jesus Christ that we've been looking at. We need to see him such that we love him and that we become willing to give up our lives for his sake. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us that sight. We thank you for the sight of Jesus that we had in this passage. And we pray that you would help us to see him in greater ways, that you would continue to renew our minds by your truth, and that we would see Jesus and be made like him, that we ourselves would be transformed into the same image from one glory to another. Father, we're going to sing now, All I Have is Christ, and help us to rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our prophet, priest, and king, the Son of Man, Son of God. Help us to worship Him and worship You through Him. By the power of Your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.